0: Grab your your Bibles now and open them to the book of Jeremiah, and we'll proceed in our study of the book of Jeremiah. I um, just remind you, I I started this, I'll probably regret it, but um, back around Halloween, I um, asked for your spare candy. I I don't want any more spare candy. I I got plenty. But um, I need kids now um, to eat it. So if you don't mind your children, uh, third grade and down or so, third third grade and down, after church, there's this little group of kids that meet in my office, and, and my, my goal is that they would not be um, afraid, and that they would come home saying, well, boy, that sure was fun going to church today, you know. And so it, it, it said in crasser terms, I am buying their love with candy. So uh, <clears throat> bring your kids by and, and join the fray. It's really fun. <clears throat> now, guys... Um, I think God's people uh, somewhat are confused by their Bibles at times, particularly the Old Testament, particularly the major prophets. They, 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 they find them too difficult to understand, and, and so they kind of shy away. This morning's passage that I'm about to read is, um, I, I mean, I'll give you some, some words of explanation from it, but I don't really think you need it. I think I can read the text. You could understand it. And that you could draw the right application, because it's, it's pretty obvious, I think you'll see as we close, what the, obli- what the application of this little scriptural lesson is here. But let me read it, and then we'll comment on it as we, um, as we go. <clears throat> the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, If you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, or if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name And in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word, this endures forever. In January of 1519, 500 years ago, something took place in the great Minster Church of Zurich, Switzerland. Um, It had the whole city talking as to what went on. One man said that he was so excited about what happened that it felt as if someone had come and lifted him by his hair out of his pew. Now, what was the, (coughs) the cause of all this commotion? But well, it was simply this. The church there in Zurich, the great minster church of Zurich, had a new pastor. <clears throat> and on his first Sunday, there at the church, he asked the congregation to turn with him to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. He began to preach it. When he finished, people left and came back the next week, and he resumed right where he left off the previous week. He did that the third week and the fourth week, and then every Sunday thereafter. He preached verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, until he had completed the entire New Testament. When he had finished the New Testament, he turned to the congregation and said, open your Bibles now to Genesis 1-1. And he did the same thing through the Old Testament, preaching the entire Testament. Old Testament, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. <clears throat> now, folks, that was unheard of. Um, Rome didn't do that. In fact, Rome doesn't do that today. Rome doesn't wouldn't offer them um, an exposition of the Word of God in language and words that they could understand. And so it didn't take long until all of that that area of Europe was clamoring to get to the the great minster church in Zurich so that they could hear the word of God taught them in words that they could understand. The the great reformation of Luther made its way to, um, to Switzerland via the preaching of a man whose name is Ulrich Zwingli. In fact, If you were to visit Zurich today and find the church, it's still standing. There is over the portal of the church, the entrance of the church, an inscription that reads, The Reformation of Ulrich Zwingli began on January the 1st, 1519. Through the exposition of God's word by a man by the name of Ulrich Zwingli. Long before Luther, long before Calvin or Zwingli, there was another reformer, another preacher of righteousness. His name was Jeremiah. Chapter 7 of the book of Jeremiah is one of his sermons. And I would suggest to you that This sermon goes through all the way through the end of chapter 10. Um, So, my sermon this morning is about Jeremiah's sermon contained here. It is called the Temple Sermon by commentarians. Why is it called that? Well, take a look at verse 2. God comes to Jeremiah and he says, Jeremiah, I want you to go stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Do you see that? Do you, t- do you see where God told Jeremiah to go? He told him to go over to the center of all of the religious activity in Israel, go over to the temple and I want you to tell these people what I tell you to tell them. I want you to preach right there in the gates of the temple. Thus it's called the Temple Sermon. Interestingly, at least to me, <clears throat> pardon me? <clears throat> this sermon is repeated in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 26. Same words you're going to find in chapter 26 when we get there, you'll see the same words. Chapter 26 gives us a detail or so that I want to use this morning, but we'll come back to uh, twenty-six later on in the in the study. But was this the second time that Jeremiah preached the same sermon? I, I don't know. Or is it the same time just repeated in the book? I, I, I don't know. All I know is there's some details in chapter 26 that will help us in this temple sermon from in, um, chapter 7 through 10. So what you have here, ladies and gentlemen, is the preaching of God's word. Go, Jeremiah, and tell them what I tell you to tell them and I want you to stand in the very gate of the, um, of the temple when you do so. Now, gang, um, before we go a whole lot further, it might help us, I, I hope, to just review a little bit of the history, where, where this is located, where this sermon is located. I think it will help you to know at least one little fact, so bear with me. The book of Jeremiah opens by telling us that uh, Jeremiah started his ministry in the 13th year of King Josiah. Um, In the 18th year of King uh, 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 Josiah, which means that Jeremiah had been at it for about five years, um, Josiah commands that the temple be refurbished, that the temple had fallen into disrepair and it needed to be repaired and fixed up. In the process of refurbishing the temple, you remember the book. The book is found, the the Bible is found. How how did they lose the five books of Moses? I don't know, but they lost it. And they find it, launching Israel into a revival. Now, after that, after that great discovery, and the temple is is, uh, being refurbished and the book is found, Josiah, the king, in a very ill-advised piece of uh, decision-making, enters into a piece of warfare with Egypt. And Josiah the king is killed in Carchemish by Pharaoh Necho. The people then put uh, Jehoahaz Jehoah on the throne, and he lasts all of three months. Pharaoh Necho didn't like him, comes to town and replaces him with his puppet, Jehoiakim. Now, all of that uh, location is something that you'll get in chapter 26. <clears throat> but, but the point of all of that, guys, is this. When Jeremiah preaches this sermon, he is preaching it to Israel in a period of relative revival. The temple has been repaired. Uh, The book has been found. Uh, There was an unprecedented Passover that had taken place that that hadn't been observed in decades. Everything in Israel religiously looked real good. Religious people church-going people. And it is to them that this message is directed during a period of relative revival. Israel really looked like she's doing well. But did you notice the message? Beginning of verse 5? No. um, Verse 8. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, We are delivered. Folks, if you'll take a close look at that and a couple other places. All ten of the Ten Commandments are mentioned or alluded to as being violated by this people in the midst of their relative revival where Jeremiah... Is being called to ask to to rebuke them in the midst of their worship because of their worship. There was this grand religious show that was going on while at the same time. All of this behavior is going on to the point that they were guilty of injustice, idolatry. By the way, chapter 10 in the sermon recounts or describes all of the idolatry about the idols that you have to carry and they don't see and they don't hear and they don't breathe and you've got to tote them from place to place. All of this is going on in a period that Israel called a revival after the book was found, after this unprecedented Passover, and even in the midst of this revival so-called, idolatry is rampant. The commentarians call it them. They had developed what they call a temple salvation. Did you notice it in verse four? Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Do you see what they 're doing, ladies and gentlemen? They're treating the temple as if it's some kind of magical tool, some kind of religious rabbit's foot, kind of a, a four-leaf clover, a good luck charm. It was, it was superstition. But they said, as long as we have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, everything's fine. Having the temple. They concluded gave them the right to live immorally. We wouldn't say it like that now. We would say something like this. I go to church. I go to church. I go to church. And somehow, my going to church has given me the right permission to go live immorally. Living in this rampant sin but then heading off to church as if everything was just peachy. you know, ladies and gentlemen, it's bad enough to engage in all this disobedience. But then to come to a conclusion that it's okay because I go to church, adding this enormous piece of hypocrisy to cover up all of my disobedient living. They um, they sin boldly. By the way, I pointed this out a couple of weeks ago in chapter 6 of Jeremiah. It's repeated in chapter 8. Which, as I said, is a part of the sermon. It's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's right over there. They have healed the wound of my people lightly saying... Peace, peace. Let's go to church and let's let all the prophets tell us what nice people we are and that everything is just fine and dandy and then let's get back in our cars and let's get on with our immoral living. Because you see the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Or I go to church, I go to church, I go to church. And all of this is being done. Verse 14 of chapter 7. In the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did the house that is in my name and I gave to your fathers. Now you trust in the building? You you, you trust in some kind of activity that you perform in that building? Saying all the while, Temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. It's the house that goes by my name. I gave that to you. And then notice in verse 28 of chapter 7, it's the house where truth has perished. There's more truth there. You're going to go on over to that building and do all of your religious stuff in a place where it's called by my name and I gave it to you. But truth is gone. These are people that want those smooth words. You just tell us, Doctor Young. You just let us come on, come on in there. We'll come on. We'll, we'll keep coming to that church, yeah, boy. And we might even throw in a buck or two. And uh, you just keep preaching to us, peace, peace. Tell us everything is okay. I would rather listen to you tell lies than for you to expose my sin. You can preach all you want, Dr. Young, about your Reformed theology and your views of baptism and teach us all the fine doctrine of the Apostles' Creed. But don't tell me to stop my sin. And when Jeremiah tries to take all this in, you know, you know, I, I get a criticism every now and then. I'm a bit too dramatic. <laughs> well, you need to read your Bible some. When Jeremiah tries to absorb all that he's saying, in chapter 8, verse 18, my joy is gone. Grief is upon me and my heart is sick within me. And then chapter 9 verse 1 is why he gets the name of the weeping prophet. He says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes were a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. By the way, David says something like that too. He says, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. When I take a look at the church going crowd, the church going crowd that wants to continue in their sin, I'm overwhelmed. Oh, that my eyes would flood tears that would, would produce rivers of water as I watch this religious show that goes on and, and at the same time, sin being clutched to their bosoms. And when I look at this I can only weep, and I want to run. Chapter 9, verse 2. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place that I might leave my people and go away from them. Why, Jeremiah? Why is it that you want to run? Look at the next sentence. For they're all adulterous. And then God says it differently in chapter 9, verse 6. Heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Let me me just let you listen in on a little bit more of his sermon. Chapter 7, verse 26, he says, Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. They wouldn't listen to somebody telling them anything but what they wanted to hear. And so they stiffened their neck and they, they went downhill from, a, from an already corrupt religious plane. Then chapter 30 and 31 of, verse, of chapter, chapter 7 For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They brought their idols to church with them. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is the valley in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did I come into my mind. To show you how religious I am. I'm going to throw my newborn infant into a fire and say the temple of the Lord the temple of the Lord the temple of the Lord chapter 8 verse 5 why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding they hold fast to deceit they refuse to return it's not just that they backslid no no they are on a path of perpetual backsliding. Verse Chapter 8, verse 7b. But my people know not the rules of the Lord. Rules? Who said anything about rules? I didn't know to be a Christian there were rules. Rules? Not, not, not for me. Why? You know, I'm under grace. Verse 9, verse 8. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. I would say to you, ladies and gentlemen, you are living in a similar day. When men write stuff that they say represent this God, and they're lying to you. So that you can keep on living in your sin. Verse 9. The wise men shall put, be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. I could go on and on. and It's a, it's a lengthy sermon. But all of this is being done in a period of relative revival. Jeremiah is having to preach this stuff to his friends, his countrymen, perhaps even his family. And of course he weeps. Of course he wants to run. What pastor wouldn't? And in one statement that comes out of his mouth, not God's, which is so moving, at least to me, that I don't know whether it's poetry or prose. It's verse 20 of chapter 8. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. We are not saved. The best I can do in terms of interpreting that, ladies and gentlemen, is that if the harvest is past and the summer is ended, then what we're facing is winter. I've had a careless past. I'm living in a sinful present. And all that awaits me now is a hopeless future. And to the preaching of this great reformer, how did they respond? Well, you're given that in uh, chapter 26. You don't need to turn out. I'm just going to read one verse. After the people heard this sermon that Jeremiah preached, this is what they said. And when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, You shall die. We're not going to listen to this stuff. We'll listen to you if you talk about peace, peace. But if you keep talking about amending my ways and giving up my sin, we're going to take your life. But ladies and gentlemen, they are not the only respondents in this sermon. To their response, God responds. And he starts in his response in chapter 7, verse 12. And he says, go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first. He wants them, he's giving them an object lesson. And he wants them to take a visit to Shiloh. Now what was there in Shiloh to see? Well, guys, Shiloh was the place where the sanctuary rested first when the nation of Israel came into the promised land under Joshua. Joshua 18, verse 1. The sanctuary was erected in the promised land for the first time at Shiloh. But he says, now, when you go to Shiloh, instead of it being the place of the living God's presence, all you're going to find is rubble. So what's the point? What's the point of the object lesson? It is simply this, ladies and gentlemen. The inevitable judgment of God Telling them to go to Shiloh was like telling them to go to the place where God is not. Shiloh is the place where God once was, but he ain't there anymore. Shiloh is a, is a figure of speech to talk about the, the absence and the abandonment of a place where God once was. But he's not there anymore because of sin. So what God is saying to this audience is what I did to Shiloh is what I'm about to do to you. Folks, there are Shilohs all around the post Christian West. Go look in London or Boston, or you could try downtown Memphis. And those places where God used to be but is no longer, they are warnings. There's a lesson to be learned from the Shilohs of the world. And here's the major lesson. And it's the one that I think you could come out without me even pointing to it. It's pretty clear, I think. Here's the lesson. The true measurement of the reality of one's profession of faith is the effect that it produces on our conduct towards God and men. Did you hear that? Here's the lesson, folks, that the true measurement of the reality of our profession of faith is the effect that it produces on our conduct toward God and man. Going to church is no substitute, no cancellation of our immorality. The one does not cancel out the other. Let me say it differently. Religious observance, divorced from moral obedience, cannot nor will not save you. Religious observance, divorced from moral obedience, will never save. Let me say it a different way for the theological types here. There is no justification without sanctification. Let me say it again differently. Where there is no changed life, there is no real life. Real life always produces changed life. Because you see, the true measurement of the reality of my profession of faith is the effect that it produces on my conduct. And then in one last final emotional outburst, I wish I could, wish I could say this or read this like he said it, because he's sobbing while he says it. It's the last verse of chapter eight when he cries. Is there no bomb in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Do you, do you hear what's going on inside of him, ladies and gentlemen? Jeremiah looks at the, the state of the church and says, there's got to be something else. There's got to be a new way. There's got to be something more. Is there no Bob in Gilead? Is there not a physician there who can fix this? Yes. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, there is Bob in Gilead. And there is a physician for every sin-sick soul. And his name is Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, neither I, nor the world, nor politics, nor government, nor social club, or whatever, can offer you any balm for your sin-sick soul. There's only one. There's only one physician for us, ladies and gentlemen. And it's not to become a member of this church. The physician is Jesus Christ and the balm that he offers is his finished work at Calvary. Apart from that, this place and you as an individual will become Shiloh, a heap of rubble where God once was, but He isn't any longer. Our Father, would you show your people from your Word your determination to see us live honorable lives that are conformed more and more to the um, to the image of Jesus Christ, and that that the gospel is something that produces more and more conformity to Christ and Him crucified. It's a it's a path that means that we are more obedient, more submissive, and more reliant today than we were yesterday because we know more and more of our need. Might every man, woman, boy, and girl in this room see very clearly that the only hope that any of us have is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Might he be seen in all of his saving splendor this morning. Do that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.